Yo, what's going on, man? Welcome back. Congratulations. I'll start off with that. You know, I'm only congratulating you because you're from the you from that area that just won the Super Bowl. So you know, I gotta start off yeah. with that. Yeah, I'm gonna keep it a sack with you, but I don't even really rock with that team. So I know I you don't. Even... I know you don't. <laughs> I, I I I I can't even take credit for that. I, yeah, I'm not. I'm not. I'm not even gonna fake that. I'm not gonna lie though. Um, no, I don't think anyone at the beginning of the year would have said confidently that they one saw the Chiefs being in the Super Bowl with the roster that they had, especially after losing Tyree Kill. Um, yeah. And two, winning the Super Bowl. It, you, you, you know what I mean? So, you think Tyreek yeah. Hill is like punching the air right now? <laughs> nah, because I, I think I think I think getting to the bag is more important to him than than winning. Hmm. So That's he, fair. He, yeah, he he went and did what was right for him. No knock against that, but yeah, that's fair. That's fair. Yeah. How does it how, how does it feel for you? Like, uh, oh, I guess I will start with this. Why aren't you a fan of Kansas City? Considering like the moment they're having, I assume like the excitement that brings to the city. Um, yeah. What what is it about them? That, like, were you just never a fan of them, or is this like a recent thing? I'm just curious. No, no, no. This this has always been a thing. Um, I okay. was a fan. I was a fan of specifically Dante Hall growing up. Like the X factor was, was different, but for me, I think, it, yeah, it's simple. Like the first time I ever watched football was literally the play that drew Bledsoe got hurt. And then hmm. Tom Brady ended up coming in and the rest is history. Like that, that's my introduction to football. So how do you yeah. not one fall in love with the Patriots, but two Tom Brady after all that? Cause I think what, it was, if, if it wasn't that same year that he ended up coming in, it was definitely the year after they ended up winning the Super Bowl. Yeah. So to yep. see him literally go from, like, Drew Bledsoe was at the top. I remember when I was playing mm -hmm. Madden at that time, Drew Bledsoe was, like, the star quarterback, you know? Yep. It's funny. I was just watching a YouTube video as I was preparing for the pod. I just had it on in the background. And I, I was watching one video, and then it was just going through the playlist. And then one of the next videos that happened to come up was, like, Tom Brady's. It was an NFL video made for Tom Brady. It was, like, two hours long about his greatest greatest time or whatever. And it started off talking about, like, how everybody doubted him. And that game, it, it talked about that game where, like, where, like, Bill made the his, switch to, his, like. His first series, he threw an interception. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, it was a it's, a it's a crazy story. So I agree with you. Like that's that's a it's an incredible story to watch. So that brings the question. I have one more question related to that. Yeah. Considering the story that you like about Tom and the narrative behind Tom, why can't you get behind the narrative behind Patrick Mahomes? Because is it not somewhat similar? I get it. Maybe not in terms of the doubt at the player level. Meaning, like, I think it was pretty clear early on Patrick Mahomes like a special talent. Whereas, like with Tom. It was it that was not obvious. That was he was he was definitely the non obvious you know factor. But once it was made clear, like the narrative is it? Do you not see any parallels between the narratives? Or I don't know. What do you think? Nah, I don't see no parallels. Because <laughs> uh, I'm even thinking about Tom Brady back to you know when he was at, when he was at Michigan. Like yeah. he he had to battle to get you know playing time. Um, yeah, and even in it like. That, I well, I said that part aside. Well, I said that part aside because I, I agree. That's the one difference between the two. That's the one difference between the two. But I'm talking about the building of a dynasty, like the starting and the building of yeah. a dynasty on their watch. 
because the Patriots was not a dynasty before Tom stuck stepped up. You know, San like Kansas City's was not before Patrick stepped up. So I'm talking about like that aspect of like coming in, being that guy, having to be that guy, having the spotlight on you, and rising to the pressure to win over anything consistently. Yeah. That seems like the story that everybody gets behind with Tom Brady. No, I can definitely get behind that story and not 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 be a fan. That don't like just because I'm not a fan, that don't make me a hater. I don't have anything For sure. to say to say about like his game. Um I'm not gonna lie. I think I think I think I think that 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 last that last drive, Mahomes, I can get behind that because okay. that 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 takes a different type of beast. Because mm-hmm. you have to really think about it. They called that play. They snapped that ball with seven seconds left. The time would have ran out if he would have got tackled. Yeah. That yeah. like that showed they had some balls. Like in 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 the way the his confidence, his confidence. Patrick Mahomes did what Lamar Jackson couldn't, which is he didn't second guess himself. Like, think about that fourth, fourth and one call. Uh you know, homie had just got stopped before. Man, they ran that read option with Patrick Mahomes. You can't tell me anybody in that stadium, anybody like most people in that stadium, even as yeah. a viewer, you did not expect Patrick Mahomes to keep that and go get you 15 on fourth and one. No. All, not not off a of QB sneak. No. Especially with his bad ankles. Thank you. <laughs> I was not expecting that. I was not expecting that. And yeah. so the heart, man, the I, like one I've always I've always liked the one thing I've always liked about Patrick Mahomes is um he has a really good grip on yeah on 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 that urge to be greedy and I think quarterbacks hmm. can get overconfident and want to take those risky throws and that's not to say he doesn't do that but he's not he's not greedy when 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 he doesn't need to like he has a really good grasp on like what are the risks I'm willing to take and what are the ones that I'm not? Um, right. And I think that really contributes to him being, man, a really good, he, he really knows how to manage a football. Yeah, he does. He does. He, 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 he really shows that he, he can do that. Because I, I was nervous. I'm not going to lie. I was nervous. But then I was like, nah. I was like, if anybody can manage the clock really well, Tom Brady's really good at that. Aaron Rodgers is really good at that. I was like, but Patrick Mahomes is really good at that. Man, so I, I, I had some, I had some confidence. It was a really good game. Honestly, I didn't really care who won. I had no real like dog in the fight, sort of say. But what I, what I do like if I'm just watching an NFL game in general, no matter who's playing, is I love a very competitive game. I don't like it to be a blowout. I don't want it to be slow. I think just as a fan watching it, especially if you're not watching it live and you're watching it at home, you want the most exciting, the most entertainment game you can possibly get. And I think in this game in particular. The fact that it went over to overtime, like it was just such a good competitive game on both sides. Where at any point in time, I was like, "Oh, San Francisco can win. Oh, the Chiefs might win. Oh, like it was like back and forth. Really, no, until the last, literally the last few seconds of the game, who was going to win? And so from that standpoint, just as a fan, um, I thought this was like an incredible Super Bowl uh, to just watch. Even though, again, for me, I didn't really care who who necessarily won. But then to top it all off, you have the the halftime. I can't even call it a halftime show. The halftime concert that Usher basically put on, um, which we definitely got to talk about. That just that just really made it even more incredible. So, um, so yeah, this well, one was on, one for the on, books for me. 
Yeah, yeah. Before before we jump into that, one other thing I just want to say about this game that was like really beautiful was the strategy. I think yeah. I think the fact that you saw these coaches who once again they're 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 confident because their experience allows them to be confident. Like they they really know what what their team, you know, can execute and what they cannot really trust their kickers. And I think across college, but yeah. also NFT, uh, NFL, like there have been moments where kickers have been, you know, chosen to show up and they've, they've, they, they've missed. And they're, they, they're both kickers, man, kept them in the game um, in crucial moments. I think the Chiefs kicker made like a 60-some yard field goal or whatever yeah. that ended up leading to like overtime. But um, the, yeah. the other thing, Tony Romo called this out and I thought it was dope as hell because I was like, oh. I, I wasn't even thinking that way, but the the recent rule change, which was before uh, in NFL games, when you went to overtime, if if the other team scored, you won. Like it was just score. Right. Um, and so now it was like, no, the other team, even if you score a touchdown or whatever, the other team. They get a position. Yeah. yeah. And so the way Romo broke it down was like, uh, at least when it came to that last drive, his whole thinking was Andy Reid is probably thinking this is just another, you know, the game restarted. This is cute. You know, this is quarter one. We just trying to get to quarter two. And, and, and so that was just a very interesting because mm. it really did look like that's how the Chiefs were playing it. They were just driving down the field to kick a field goal to go to another right. overtime. So, yeah. Yeah, I did notice that. Is that something that was implemented like new in this super, like this year or? Yeah, 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 yeah. This okay. Year. Yeah, I noticed that because I, I looked it up because I, I, in my mind, I'm like, I, I believe it was like first to score. It's like, that's typically how no, it's always been. Yep. And I looked it up real quick and I was like, wait a minute, both teams get a possession. And then I think after that, you know, if, if they don't score or something like that, then then it's over. Yep. So I was like, OK, that's actually good, though. Like that, that really because it was such a competitive game. I'm like, this this literally can come down to the, the, the last few seconds of this next this next uh this next clock which it really did so yeah. like man it just shows goes to show like like you said the heart on both sides of the ball really um but yeah what do you think about the halftime performance bro that was like the really the one of the major highlights outside of the the ot well yeah man that usher performance was crazy what what, what were your thoughts initial thoughts yeah, yeah yeah before i share my thoughts i thought the numbers were very interesting which are um they said around 120 million people uh watched um yeah watched 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 this halftime show um was that the most no 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 uh i want i want i want i want i want to get this right uh what is uh oh shit why is it working Nah, it's de it's definitely not the most because I remember they ended up showing it on um they ended up showing the stats on um uh, on television. I want to say I know Br Bruno Mars and Beyonce was up there, um, okay. and then uh, I want to say it was actually Shakira. Really? Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I want to say hers was like three hundred million. It was like three times higher what? than yeah. Yeah, that's crazy. She probably had the Latin American. It's probably the Latin American culture that she really like. They turn put that switch on. Yeah, like uh, yeah, Beyonce's uh, well, Rihanna's last year got a got a hundred twenty. Uh, okay. Yeah. So Rih very, no, very Rihanna. Rihanna did it last year, right? Yep. 
Yep, she did it last year. And so um, I'm going to be honest. I wasn't impressed with this halftime show at all. Mm. Okay. Um, I wasn't impressed from an artistic standpoint. Um, just because, one, I thought he was doing a lot of moving and dancing, um, which was cool. But my brother looked like he was tired um, and he was sweating all over the damn place. And I actually, uh, Lena really called this out, but we ended up rewatching the Beyonce, both of Beyonce's halftime shows. And she did just as much dancing and she didn't break a sweat. And so there, there's, there's that. The other thing too is from an artistic standpoint, it gave sloppy. It gave like he did not really prepare for this. He just rather took that like, oh, I've been doing these residencies in Vegas and I'm just going to show up because people kind of know I'm Usher and this is what to expect. It did not give, you can't tell me if Beyonce would have had that show that it would have been like that. No, it, like there's certain levels of progress, like uh, perfection that would, that would have been achieved. I think the other thing too was like his vocals were off. Uh, like there were times where, you know, I was like, damn man, hit that note. You know, he didn't hit it. It's it just the lip singing. And then the other thing too is like, I just thought the mix, the mix was off. Like they didn't, they didn't give songs uh, the space to breathe. Like, you know what I mean? And these were songs mm. where I feel I feel like really could have captivated the crowd, captivated mm -hmm. the audience because everybody knows those words. And so mm -hmm. there was that. And then also it was just a, a lot going on with everybody that was on the field and all of that. I can't really like from on. Yeah, when it comes to that, I can't tell if it was because of the camera angle, um, because because I have noticed a difference in the camera angle where like there's super like this super you know, personal zoned in on this performer versus like being a little bit, you know, uh, zoomed out and you can kind of see what's kind of going on. Um, but it just felt like there was a lot going on around him uh, as well. It was dope, actually, um, how he included different people like Lil John and Ludacris. I thought that was super dope. Um, mm -hmm. And Jermaine Dupri, I thought that was super dope. I also thought it was super dope that he threw in her. Um, she had posted an image of her actually singing the national anthem uh, when she was 11 years old at like a 49er mm. game or something. And so that was like, yeah, that was a special moment for her. And I thought she killed that, man. Um, yeah. And then obviously everybody got thoughts on the, on the Alicia Keys situation. Uh, curious to hear your thoughts on it. But yeah, yeah man, I, I think just going in, the level of hype that went into this, it set really high expectations. My expectations were not met. Hmm. That's interesting. I would, that, that's a really surprising take. I had the opposite. I had the opposite. I mean, I definitely agree on the mixing between the, like the, the time that they gave each song, like especially some of like the really, really big hits, right? Like some of those, it seemed like they only gave it like 20 seconds. Like I get Hold it. Up. You can't, you can't sing the whole song. Totally get it. But it was like 20 seconds of just like a, you just but, needed five or ten more seconds to really get there. But I, but I also understand the constraints because he got such a deep catalog where, and I mean, this is just, you know, respect to him. Every song he sung felt like a hit, right? Every song that he sung, everybody knew, you know what I'm saying? It wasn't, it was not a single song that he got up there and sung and we was like, wait a minute, what you... What, what song is that? Like, no, like everybody knew every song. And so I think when you are that artist in that position where everybody knows every single song that you're doing, 
I do understand the, the the time constraint that you're working with. And I think he did like 20 or 21 songs. And I think he had like 13 or 15 minutes, something like that. Yeah. So, look, I get it. Um, but I think on the... Oh, go ahead. No, I was going to say on that point, but I think I'm actually curious how much creative control these artists have in their shows. Because once again, when I went back and watched Beyonce, um, specifically, if you watch... Uh, I want to say it was her, not the one with Bruno Mars. So it was like her most recent one. Uh, yeah. Or actually, that one was with Bruno Mars. Um, but even together, I think they did like maybe three songs a piece. And like they were actually like it was like minutes long type. But of there's like a difference thing. between but there's a difference between three songs a piece. And you got to do 21 songs. That's, that's not point. even. I'm, I'm that's like, what I'm did, saying. Why did he have to do so many? Because I think for him, he just because he has a whole body of work that he's trying to cover. He got thirty years of, of music, thirty years of fans. You know what I'm saying? Like, yeah, he got me as a fan, but then he got my parents as a fan. You know what I'm saying? Then he got my grandparents as a fan. So he got thirty years of music, which I actually liked how he did it. He got to cover a timeline. You know what I'm saying? It's not like he's just picking out songs from like his old Usher, and then okay, well, what about like the what about the the Gen X's, right? What about them, or what about? You know, what about the current generation? You know, they they want to hear the good, good. I don't know if he did good, good, but like they want to hear some of his new stuff as well. So I think, we, again, when you're an usher, when you have such a large body of work and damn near feel like every song you have is a hit. And you're trying to cover every every generation that you basically have created music for. I mean, I only think there's so many ways to slice that in a, in a short amount of time, you know, whereas Beyonce took a different approach. And not to say Beyonce don't have that body of work, but at that time when she did it, she did not have 30 years of, of a catalog. She just didn't. So you, you just talk, the context of that, I think is just a little bit different. And then I think the other thing is because he has been doing the residency, I think there's just, uh, there, there is a certain expectation around the songs that he will do because, you know, at his residency, he, that's the way he does it. You know what I'm saying? Well, I'm pretty sure he's covering a, a similar body of work. The difference is he got, I think, two and a half hours for those shows or two hours. I think the show is at least two, two and a half hours versus 15 minutes. You know what I'm saying? So you can, you can really walk a little bit slower. So again, I, I think given all those constraints, I mean, I think there's only really so many ways to slice it where you can really get like, you know, quality out of it. Um, I, I would say on that regard, I don't know the some of the other like little details around the sound. I think it was hard for me to even hear it because the the woman at least at the party at my party was singing like so loud I could barely could even hear them. Like I can only hear the back the the music and the bass. So I'm gonna have to go back and really listen to it. Um, and then the other thing is, you know, I try not to really I I, I try not to. I mean, I, it's, it's hard, but I, I think naturally it just happens. I try not to compare artists' performance to other ones because like I I went to a Beyonce's concert and once I saw Beyonce. I was like, it's unfair to really compare her to other people. It's just, it's just unfair. It's just not, it's just not even close. You know what I'm saying? So I got to look at the artists, the specific artists, look at their body of work, look at how they create art, how they self-express, and then judge it based on that. Because I think if you start like comparing it, like, I mean, Beyonce is like the top of the top. So it's like, it's easy, it's easy for her to blow anybody out the water. But I think if you look at an artist individually and look at their work and their contribution, I think it's differently. Cause I can argue and say like Michael Jackson one was really dope, but you know, he didn't have a lot of the flair and this and that, like his was just based on him. You know what I'm saying? Mostly, you know, some people really like the Prince one. So I think, I think it's really based on artistic choice, but uh, nevertheless, I thought Archie did a pretty good job. And um, 
yeah, I mean, I'm going to go back and listen to it again because, I don't know, the vocals, you might be right about that one. I didn't really get a chance to see that. But I did see the sweat dripping off his face, so I saw that he was tired as hell. But, I mean, when you're dancing like that, I mean, I feel like it's just bound to happen, you know? Yeah. No, this, these are some fair points that you make, man. These are some fair points. Yeah, I think, I don't know. I don't know. I, it, my expectations were a little bit higher. That's fair. I did hear that, uh, I mean, I haven't listened to the whole album, but I, I hear that he got some critical feedback from the new album. People, some people are really not liking the new, the new sound. I don't know. Rocks. I don't know what that really means necessarily. Cause I haven't listened to it yet. The only song I heard from it, I think is good, good, which I believe is on the album. And maybe, maybe another one. I'm sure he performed some at the Super Bowl, but again, it was hard for me to hear like every single song that he was doing. Um, but uh, yeah, we'll, we'll see. We'll see. I'm interested to see how his album sells. Or not album sales, his, his ticket sales for his tour um, are going to yeah. perform. Because I believe he's going on tour. And I know they have the Lovers and Friends uh, Festival, music festival, also coming up, which I know he's uh, a part of as well. And I don't know, he had a, a, a lot of other stuff in the back that he's cooking up. So I'm, I'm curious to know how this exposure pays off for him. Because, I mean, honestly, that's what it was really for. for in the terms of him, like, that's the incentive for him anyway. Yeah. No, I... I, I um... This is one thing I, I I didn't I didn't know that um, halftime performers don't get paid. Um, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. And so it's dope to I, I will say that I thought that was dope to see how he kind of had aligned everything to kind of capitalize on that free, yeah, kind of like marketing. So that was, and and that's why I think they probably do have a, a lot of creative control. I don't know like the answer in terms of like who really controls that, but I would assume so. I mean, they are getting paid for it, so I mean, I feel like the you know, the other, the only thing you can do is like, just give them creative control. I mean, it probably has to be verified. I'm sure. Cause it is national TV. So you got to keep it within the bounds. I'm sure. But I'm pretty sure like the set list and all that stuff. Uh, I, I'd imagine he was very, very involved in selecting. Cause I mean, it's his music. So I mean, it's, it's super personal. No, nah, and this, and I had to double check and make sure before I speak on this, but Jay-Z and rock nation, they're the ones who, um. Yeah, they choose the performer and plan out mm -hmm. the halftime show. That's yeah, yeah, yeah. They're like the I forget the title they gave them. It's like uh, strategic creative, or no, chief of entertainment or some. I don't know. There's like some yeah. some role essentially they've given Rock Nation. Um, and uh, I saw an interview actually where Usher was talking about how Jay called him and told him it was time and, and told him he was going to do the show and stuff. And that's what's dope because, like, I feel like Jay as an artist understands, like, the artist mentality and understands what it means for artists to to create and be self-expressed, like, to, to self-express in whatever way that they want to do it. Like, I'm sure when, when they did the halftime show last year with Dr. Dre and Snoop, like, that could have went in a bunch of different ways, you know what I'm saying? So I'm sure, like, they let, like, probably Dr. Dre, like, drive a lot of that because, like, you know, Dre know his sound. He, you know what I'm saying? He know, he has a vision for what he wants. Uh, so it's hard for somebody else like Jay to probably come in and like, you know, tell him what to do. Similarly, if Jay was doing a halftime show, I'm sure he would want that same flexibility. I feel like Jay, Jay-Z, man, he probably is more so like the mediator between the artists Facts. and the NFL. Because yeah. they definitely be doing like they definitely be doing some stuff. Like, say, for example, like last last night, Usher, uh, Usher taking his shirt off and I. I saw a few people be like, this is a family event. There are kids watching. <laughs> and I'm like, that's a really good point. 
was that I don't okay let's let's talk let's talk about this and then Alicia thing and then I want to talk about one more thing with some ads uh and yep. then we'll off from this okay thoughts on that because I actually thought it was really good I actually thought it was really good uh and I think the contact I think the contact made it even better I think the contact made it even better I don't know I yeah I actually thought it was really good again on the audio I had to go back and listen to the vocals and all of that to really judge it. But like visually and the sound, like generally the sound, what I was able to ca- what I was able to observe, I thought it was I thought it was solid. I, don't, I thought it was solid. You seem to have a different opinion, so go ahead. I want to hear that. Yeah, there there were there were a few moments where I was triggered, and the image that popped up into my hand <laughs> into my head was those genuine dance videos. So if you've been on IV or TikTok, it's all genuine dancing within the last few years. That is exactly what Usher looked like to me up there. I was like, what the hell is he doing? Because, yeah, I don't know. That's, that's But you're talking what... about specifically that moment. That moment was really short. Like, he walked over to the piano. He kind of was next oh, to her. Oh, no, I'm not, even, I'm not even necessarily what, talking what about moment? that moment. Okay, okay. I, there were, there was a, this was before, even before that. This is when he was still in all white, and then he took off the, uh, took off the vest, and then took off his uh, white beater, and then he went and changed, and... I yeah, see. This, this this was before that. Um, but yeah, since we talking about the piano, um, yeah, yeah, that was the moment seeing, I was talking about. Man, I've been seeing a lot of insecurity, man, across across men on 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 Twitter, man, around like, oh, Usher, unhuck, huck, huck, you know, took Swiss Beats wife, and then I saw Swiss Beats um, respond, which I actually I actually liked how he respond, man. Um, Same and, and, respect. And, and, yeah, just because once again, like the, the way I look at it is like D Wade dating Gabrielle Union. She in these videos playing these roles where she making out with men or whatever the scene may look like. You can't be with a woman like that, you knowing what her, the role that she you know plays in within her career, and be insecure about that. And I think nope. that's what a, a lot of people are just like forgetting um, that like she's a, she's a performer, like and while. Out of that context, sure, I can see how you could potentially get to, you know, feeling that way. I think Swiss Beat, like, it, it, it wouldn't be right of us to think that Swiss Beast doesn't understand that. Um, yep. And honestly, I feel like there's probably a lot of mutual respect um, that Swiss Beats probably has with Usher. You know what I mean? Just given, just mm-hmm. given, it, it, it seems like, yeah, Alicia and Usher were pretty close. I don't know what romantically that looked like, but. He didn't come out there like I really loved how he responded. He didn't come and attack Usher, put him down or anything. He was like, y'all are laughing at the wrong thing. And I really liked how he then pointed it to positive things uh, yep. as well. And so, yeah, I'm going to be honest. I think I think I, th- I, I, I almost feel like Alicia and um, Usher did that intentionally just because mm. it was a night. It was a night of breaking the Internet and they did just that. Oh yeah, they got everybody talking. They got everybody talking. What were your thoughts? Um, As a married person too, I thought it was good, man. Like, I look, I look at it as art because that's what it is. It's a performance. It's artistic. Um, and I mean, look, they're in front of sixty thousand people, or however many people was at the game, and then however many people are are watching. So, hundred, would you say one hundred and twenty million people? So. Yeah. It's only so far as going to go. So I don't think any of it was inappropriate. But similar to what you were saying, if you're an actress and you're in a movie and you're doing a kissing scene or a sexual, like, 
was, you know, that to me that that's way further. But again, it's still artistic and it's not real, right? So I mean, this and dancing and all this. I mean, I feel like what I mean, you know, what else is he supposed to do? He, I mean, look, make the best art you can possibly make within the bounds that you have, right? So <laughs> that's my expectation. So I'm sim- I'm like Swiss, like. Y'all ignoring the facts. Like, that dress was amazing. When I first saw it, I was like, damn. I was like, that's yeah. crazy. And then it broke off. I was like, oh, that's no, that wild was, right that there. Was, that, that was fire. That I was, was like, that's, that was different. Like, man, she looked amazing. He looked amazing. Like, I was like, it just took my mind way back to being a, being a kid, watching, like, 106 in part. And, like, like, I don't know. It just took my mind back so far, like, seeing them two together. So, like, I was just really ca- captivated into that moment. So I wasn't even focused on, like, those those like insecure details um yeah i thought it was good art man i i, I really enjoyed it no nah, I, I i same bro like it was definitely nostalgic um and when and, yeah and when they smoothly transitioned into my boo i was like bro what like yeah we all used to watch that on 106 in park like come on now facts so, bro i don't think my head even thought any anything of it really until like I hopped on TikTok and saw people. I was like, wow, that's how you're responding? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I figured people will respond that way. Because, I mean, he did he did caress her and all that. So I was like, okay, I know people going to say something. But I was like, you know what, man? Swiss is a boss. You know, he don't have to even go. He don't even got to say nothing. I'm like, bro, it ain't like Swiss no random guy. I'm like, bro, Swiss is a boss, bro. Like, he went in. So he he good. Like, he he good. And I would expect, like, if it was Beyonce, Jay, same thing. Like, it's not even, it, this is nothing. Not even worried about it. This worked out for both of us. Right. <laughs> Cause her music probably going crazy too right now. Like, Thank yo, you. this is this this is good. This is good marketing for the family. So go ahead, run it up. Run it up. Do what you gotta do. Thank you. Thank you. I'm all for it. But uh, but yeah, man, in addition to that great performance, man, there was a bunch of obviously people tuned into the Super Bowl to watch the ads. There was some crazy ads. I don't, nothing like really, really stood out to me except for, I mean, there was a couple that stood out, but there was one in particular that stood out because it had like a little jingle in it. And uh, Nia was just like consistently singing this jingle like all night after she saw the ad. And I'm like, okay, this is obviously effective by that company. Uh, and I didn't know much about them. So the company is called Timu. Um, and I th- somebody recently told me about Timu, maybe about, Maybe a couple of weeks ago, somebody mentioned it to me, but I've never been on Timo before. I've never downloaded the app before, so I wasn't really familiar with it. Um, but Timo essentially is an is a online marketplace for people to be able to shop for clothes, be able to shop for home items. Uh, they sell a lot of different things. So they, they, they sell a variety of products uh, and they sell them really cheaply. And so the way somebody described it to me was like a mixture of like another version of Alibaba and like maybe Amazon in a way had a baby, but these are products that come from China and it's a Chinese based company. And so last night they ran a Super Bowl ad. I believe they ran one last year as well. So this is their second time running an ad. Uh, and then yesterday's ad alone, uh, they gave away $10 million worth of promotional giveaways uh, to the audience. So they're giving away millions of dollars wrapping up their advertising in the US. In the 2023, actually, they spent $1.3 billion on ads, just on Meta alone, not including Google, not including TikTok and ads in the U.S., literally just on Meta. So this company is coming out of nowhere. They entered into the to the U.S. market just in 2022. So it wasn't even that long ago that they entered into the U.S. market. 
And the U.S. consumer is becoming incredibly um, aware of, of exactly who they are. I mean, I, I find that to be pretty, pretty interesting that they come in in 2022 and then uh, immediately start doing Super Bowl commercials. And so, um, uh, yeah, they started, they're, they're owned by a, a Chinese-based company called PDD Holding. Uh, and this is a Chinese-based conglomerate that owns a couple other companies as well. Uh, and yeah, I always find it interesting that these lower lower price marketplaces like a Sheen or a Timu or Alibaba are able to come into the U.S. Um, and really other other international markets as well beyond China. I mentioned those because those are all predominantly Chinese Chinese founded companies that have started to reach international um, exposure and awareness. Uh, that they come into the U.S. market. And uh, it really starts to spread and dominate really quickly, uh, especially because they take advantage of social channels. They take advantage of mobile apps. I was looking at something, I think like 80% of their revenue comes from mobile. So, I mean, it, like it, it's, it's, all, it's all like see an ad on TikTok and instantly order from Timbo. Uh, and, you know, one of the unique selling propositions of the company, of this particular company uh, is obviously the lower price, but then they also have a, a just a, a little bit of a wider selection than some of the other Chinese-based marketplaces. So, you know, I think this company is really interesting. Um, and the thing that was, the, the, the thing that got me really thinking about this is because I, I took a trip to China. Well, I didn't take a trip to China necessarily. I took a trip to Thailand. I had a layover in China. And it was really interesting seeing the behavior in China compared to the U.S. in particular. One thing that really stood out to me when I was over there is like the payment system. Like, and I remember that everything being mobile payments, like I went to KFC at the airport and I was getting something, something to eat. And if you wanted to pay, you had to use like mobile payments. It was like QR code, opens up an app and everything was done mobile. There was no like physical credit cards or anything like that. And this was years ago. And that, that behavior wasn't existing here in the U.S. And then we went through COVID. Restaurants and a lot of businesses started adopting QR codes and now starting to become more mobile payment friendly and, for, and, and forward. But it still is not at the level of adoption that it is in China, even just in terms of payment volume. And I think when I looked it up, I, like China was doing hundreds of billions of dollars in mobile payment transactions compared to the U.S. It was like 20 billion. It was very small. And I'm sure that number is even more astronomical now. This Again, this was like almost five years ago. And um I say that to say because I think what's interesting from just like a strategy standpoint is understanding what different marketplaces, products, services, trends exist in other areas of the world beyond in the U.S. market and then try to understand how do those trends and possibly those, those uh, services and products can translate to this market or even other markets where that product doesn't exist, right? And so... Again, you take a product like Timu that exists and was doing really well in China, and then you introduce it in 2022 in the U.S., and obviously it does well. And there are other examples, other products that are similar to this. Like, I think I heard the story of the guy that uh, ended up uh, founding, like, the Tempur-Pedic mattress did the same thing. He ended up going to Europe, finding a factory that was working on, like, that particular uh, material, got the U.S. license, and they ended up selling it into the U.S. And so, like, I say that to say, like, I find it really interesting when either foreign companies come into the U.S. and how they're able to um, capture an audience here, whether it be through social, aggressive marketing tactics, lower prices, whatever the case may be, but introducing a, a for, essentially a foreign behavior to, the, to us. Or I find it interesting when 
someone that is American is able to go out, observe these different products and services that do exist that aren't here in the U.S. and then bring them to the U.S. Um, and so Timo is just one example of that, but I'm, there's tons of other opportunities like that. Um, and yeah, they just kind of stood out to me. I'm actually curious. Um, was there anything that they, in, in, ter in terms of their go-to-market, was there any change between how they went to went to market in, in China versus like the US market or any other market? Um, I think the major change would just be access to like the social platforms that they have in China and just like how like social commerce is a little bit different there. So just tapping into that because I believe the parent company owned, if I'm not mistaken, a live social commerce app uh, product. So basically you think like a, I don't know if people are, if this audience may be familiar with like QVC, for example, or like, I don't know, back in the day, like those live shopping commercials where people would have to call, like somebody would be pitching a product, let's say jury or something like that. And then you have to literally call the phone number in order to buy the product. So I think in China, they were using social channels similar to that, where it's just a little bit different. That isn't necessarily the case in the US. That has started to pick up a little bit, like TikTok has invested into so more social commerce. Amazon has some things like that. So Timo is definitely probably going to start tapping into that. But I will say like, that's the difference that I've seen. They, they have access to that in China. They don't have that here. So what do they do? They take advantage of things like TikTok. Uh, they take advantage of other mobile applications. Like that's why they spent 1.3 billion across Meta. So that includes WhatsApp, Instagram, uh, the Facebook properties. And again, that's just Meta. They also are spending heavy on Google search as well. So they're really tapping into like the, the mobile the mobile engagement that's here in the U.S. And I, I, I imagine as social commerce starts to grow, they, they'll be first to, to tap into that too. Got you, got you. Now, that's, that's definitely interesting. Um, I hadn't really dove into Timu, but I was just doing some quick research into, um, yeah, more so, more so the operations of it. That's, like, I, I, that's what I was curious about is they're spending all this money on ads to acquire a customer. And they're doing that confidently. And you only do that if you're very confident that your LTV is going to be higher than the cost to acquire acquire that customer. Of course. Um, and so that's that's that that's pretty dope. But one of the things that I just found about like their business model, which I find uh, which I'm like, damn, that's actually really good thinking, was um so PDD, I wasn't really hip to them, but they 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 have extensive they have an extensive logistics network um not only when it comes to uh shipping and de uh delivering but also um more specifically when it comes to suppliers and manufacturers um and it seems like the way the way the way they're really taking advantage of this is it's it's part an efficiency play which i, I feel like a lot of Asian businesses uh, are really hyper focused on efficiency, which is super dope, uh, super dope. Um, and I think even in terms of like restaurant experiences, you 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 kind of see that, um, yeah, which is dope. But the other thing too was um, data, data, and so they're they're actually they're it seems like they've been able to scale this larger kind of like drop shipping um, um, method where they're essentially directly connecting you, the consumer, with the manufacturers of these products. And these, yep. and these manufacturers are basically just kind of drop shipping this thing. Um, and so it's, 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 it's dope to just see them 
yeah, like essentially leverage this parent company's advantages um, yeah. more so on the supply side. Um, because if, if if we think about it, they 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 are a marketplace, and for most marketplaces, getting supply is the hardest thing. Yeah, it, again, it's like a mix between Alibaba and Amazon, right? Like, yeah, it, yeah. Alibaba in the, in the terms of the vendor network, because Alibaba is similar, also has a pretty wide and dense vendor network. But the efficiencies of Amazon, right? Amazon has definitely, over the last several decades, been building out that efficiency to get us two day, one day shipping, right? So. Yeah, I, I I see the similar things with with Timbo in terms of how they how they definitely approached it, uh, and then on the repeat purchase, man, it's it's insane. Like I just know, like Nia alone, like just in my household, like any new vacation, anything, like she's constantly ordering new stuff from there because it's just so cheap. It's like she can go on there and spend like twenty dollars or thirty dollars and get five different dresses. You know what I'm saying? Like six different tops, like a bathing suit, like a bunch of different stuff for a five day trip and only spend like $30, $40. And so when, when you, when you're able to get from a, just from the consumer standpoint, at least what I've observed, when you're able to get that much value, like you're just, you constantly just ordering more, you're constantly just ordering more, even where you don't really probably even need the clothes, right? Cause you already got clothes and the last few orders stuff, you know what I'm saying? But it's just the fact that it's so cheap. Uh, and it's so accessible, again, because they've optimized for that mobile quick experience, quick checkout, quick payment integrations, all of that. Um, it's just hard to resist it. And on top of, they, in terms of strategy, but they've done the same strategy in China. They are very aggressive with their promotional discounts, right? So they know exactly when, in terms of data, going back to what you said about data, they know exactly when to like press that, that push that notification to the consumer, hey, 50% off. Maybe they're grabbing like your email data so they know when you got a trip coming up. I mean, there's probably so much information that they can be gathering to look at to know when to trigger that. But they do a really good job at triggering those promotional discounts, which which does lead to um, more uh, more retention in terms of purchases, at least just from looking at, you know, the one case study of my own household, it seems like. Yeah, I, and I, that's a really good point. Um, just because like when you're talking about retention, I, I wanted to go look up this. So they're, yeah, it looks like their CAC is estimated to be around $75, but their payback period is four months. Um, and so, yes, it, 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 it seems like yeah, despite these purchasing amounts mm -hmm. not being that big, $20, $30, the fact that like they're, they're paying it, like they're getting people to pay it back and probably stick with them for a long time. I guess a, a question that I have for you is, um, I feel like over, over the, like, Probably over like the last decade, we've definitely seen the rise of, yeah, I would just say Chinese companies coming and really dominating the U.S. market like out of nowhere. Yeah. Let's not yeah. act like 2022 wasn't just yesterday. Yeah. You know what I mean? And I guess from 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 your perspective, what what are what are what are U.S. founders not learning that they could take away? from some of these, you know, Chinese rockets. Hmm. Well, I think, I think the context is a little bit different, right? Because I think by the time many of these Chinese companies come to the U.S., they are armed with resources that an early stage startup doesn't have. So I think that context has to be set. I think if you are comparing apples to apples in terms of like company size, then I think the, 
takeaways is a little bit different, right? Because there's different things at, at play there. Um, but I think, you know, in terms of like coming into the U.S. market, they just have different resources, you know, by the time they get here. You, you know, you think about like TikTok when it really hit its stride here in the U.S., like it had already had an audience in China, you know what I'm saying, of tens of millions of people. So it already had capital. It already had infrastructure. It already had, you know, it already had a lot of uh, just, just flywheels built into the product. And so it was really just a matter of flipping a light switch. And so I think about, I think that's just uh, a little bit differently. I think that's just a little bit different. But I think the, the, the real takeaway, though, goes back to what I said, which is there are certain behaviors that are not yet exposed or, I should I say, are common in the U.S. And so I think the real thing is to understand, like, what are some of those opportunities and what are, you know, what's happening in, in, in a different market? And then how can you bring that, how can you bring that to the U.S., right? And then I think operationally, going back to what your point is, I think there's probably a lot to learn in terms of operationals, right? In terms of like how to leverage data to really, um, and, you know, Amazon has been good at this as well. So there's certainly some U.S. companies to look at in terms of models. But I think these Chinese companies, as, you, as you've alluded to, what they've done really well is leverage data and understand the consumer really well. And they understand how to get that consumer to purchase their product. And they understand how to get that consumer to come back again and again, even if they don't necessarily have the best experience every single time, right? And so they understand how to play with price, how to play with marketing, how to play with messaging, how to play with product selection, how to incorporate data. They understand how to mix all those things together in order to drive a, an outcome. And so I think that's something that like just any company can use, even no matter if you're small or, or, or large. Um, but yeah, I think a lot of these companies have just simply had an advantage because of the resources. Like in, again, in this case, Timo, they have a parent company that has a shit ton of money behind them. And so that certainly helps getting into any market, I think. No, I, I, I very good point um, on just the comparison piece of things. One thing that also came to mind was um, I would say they just move with a, a different sense of urgency too. Oh, for uh, sure. <laughs> their aggression's yeah. a little bit different. Uh, yeah. Almost alluding back to what I was saying about the Chinese startup that I had uh, observed over at Northwestern, like how they were just just moving super crazy. Um, but I think another thing too is like when I going back to what you said, you know, all all of these are getting started over there in China. Um, yeah. And I think, I think about how, yeah, what there's that crazy stat of like in the eighties, China was like the poorest country in the world. They had so many, uh, such a large piece of their, you know, popular, uh, you know, citizens that mm -hmm. were below the poverty line. And now they're like the second one behind us. Um, and a lot of that was due to their government, regardless of whatever your thoughts are on that, like, investing in these areas strategically like they didn't right. get to this type of dominance without by, like by chance they've been like making those strategic investments and i think it's a testament to those companies like really capitalizing um on those investments regardless of if you're you know some people may say all oh, these companies were basically you know the chosen ones uh mm -hmm. you know to 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 make it but yeah and that's what I was saying. Like the Chinese government has definitely been helpful. Like even in electric vehicles, which is a whole different category, but like the amount of capital that has gone into that. And so oftentimes like the Chinese company, uh, 
uh, I think it's BYD or something like that. Yeah, is the, the automaker is 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 often compared to Tesla and like, oh, they're going to pass Tesla. But like the amount of the government subsidies that that company has received as compared to Tesla is enormous. Now I get it. Tesla has also received some tax credits and benefits, but I think the the level is just different. It almost seemed like. China has a way of almost nationalizing some of their companies, but it doesn't necessarily appear that way externally unless you really look underneath the cover. And so, again, I think when you have that type of backing and almost what seems like unlimited resources by the government, then, you know, it's hard not to go into a market and really take it when all you got to do is just grind through it. It's not a re- you're not you're not really resource constraint. Like Obviously, there's some resource constraints, but not not in the same way when you got to fund it off your own balance sheet, right? And you don't really have like that, that necessarily that, that sort of backing. That's, that's really what I've like observed from a lot of these Chinese companies that do come into the US market or just expand beyond their market or even within their market, right? And I think that has been a, a benefit to the, to the Chinese economy, right? That has def- certainly helped them, them grow and get to where they are because the government has been willing to step in. Um, I wonder where, at what point will that stop though? Because I can't imagine that that's sustainable forever. But maybe it is. I don't know. No, I think there's there's been a few people recently. Um, I'm forgetting his name, but he he he's he's considered the guy who basically spotted um, the crack in the economy that led to the 2008 housing crisis. Um, hmm. And he recently came out and said that like he's observing a very similar crack um, in China's economy as well. Just given you know all this all this kind of investment and and things of that uh, as well, um, and I think I think just the larger thing that I would say for listeners out there listening to this conversation, just having this global mindset of just just markets, um, just because yeah they may like from 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 a simplistic level a market is a market, but the dynamics are vastly different based off of social political you name it, just kind of like dynamics. And I think that's just something to be fascinated about because the more you get like, at least one, that's that's something I've been starting to try to uh, become more curious about mm-hmm. just because once I think you've thrown out this word a lot, it's cycles, mm. cycles. And so there's always opportunities. Um, I feel like there's always opportunities to, you know, potentially look at somewhere else and not necessarily say like, oh, that will happen exactly how it happened in that country here in the U.S. Right. But if a country is under a ton of inflation pressure um, yeah. and crazy interest rates, like that very much can happen to us as well, which I which I think, you know, we've been experiencing over the last few years as well. Um, so, yeah, man, just having a global perspective and just being curious about that. I feel like that's yeah. that's definitely a uh, a source of edge. It is. And you know what? I really started to understand that as I peeled back the layer and looked at Mark Zuckerberg's acquisition of WhatsApp. Because at first, I didn't understand why they would pay $19 billion for this messaging app that I think at the time was doing less than, it was definitely doing less than $100 million in revenue. I don't even know if it was doing that much. Maybe. I believe it might have been. But it wasn't doing a bunch in revenue. It didn't have a bunch of employees. So it wasn't like it had a crazy amount of talent. It had good talent, though. Maybe, you know, obviously you could say well enough in order to scale it to the size that it did. But I didn't quite understand the importance of, like, that decision strategically. Again, until I left and started traveling to other places and realizing 
oh, okay. Like you go to China and like, oh, there's WeChat. Oh shit. Everything's through WeChat. You buy groceries through WeChat. You pay your phone bill through, like, you pay all your utilities through WeChat. You even pay your rent through WeChat. Like you talk to your family through WeChat. You share things through WeChat. You, you know, your, your, your personal banking is through WeChat. Oh, everything is through this messaging app. So it's not just a messaging app. It's, it's a, it's a platform now, right? Like it's, it's something completely different is the way that they literally live their lives using WeChat. Like WeChat is such an integral part to China. And then you go to some of the other Asian markets and they have similar products, whether it be WeChat or whatever that, that they may be using. It's like, oh, okay. So again, from a global perspective, I think Zuck saw like, oh, okay. In China, there's WeChat and there's other pockets of the world. There are these dominant messaging apps. And it was imperative for Facebook to own that because now you look back at it and even still as I travel now, WhatsApp is the most dominant app used in almost any country that I've ever been to, no matter what. I mean, yes, WeChat is there in China, but almost anywhere else in the world, like WhatsApp is like the go-to. It's the go-to standard messaging app, but it has evolved beyond just messaging uh, to much more than just that. And so once I understood, once I, I started to see that, then I'm like, okay, I see what game he's playing. He's going after, you know, he's going after this, this more mega trend that hasn't really quite struck the U.S. yet. But that's where that's where the rest of the world is going. And I mean, it was a, it was right. And so looking back, 19 billion dollars seemed really cheap <laughs> compared to, I'm sure, the value that, that they've been able to extract from from growing WhatsApp to what they've grown into so, thus far. Yeah. So 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 when you mention WeChat and WhatsApp, the, the word that pops up into my mind is super app. Do you? Think yes. The U.S. Is, yeah. What are your thoughts on the U.S. market having a super app like? Does it currently already exist? I know some people have alluded to like that's kind of you know Elon's vision with Twitter. Um, yeah, what are you, what are what are what are your thoughts? So it is it's exactly that. That's the right word to use. And I, I think in the U.S. there have been many companies that have tried to do it and are trying to do it. So like Uber is trying to take a stab at that, right? So now you can order groceries on Uber. You can order a ride on Uber. You can order food food delivery on Uber. You can rent cars on Uber. Right. You could do a lot more things on Uber than you could have been able to do historically, where it was just like, hey, push a button, get a ride, point A to point B. So Uber is starting to add more of those services to the Uber to their to their main app in order to try to evolve into that super app. Facebook is certainly trying to do it as well across their properties. Um, you know, so there are US companies that have tried to take a stab at it. I don't necessarily know if the US consumer wants that necessarily. And so I think it really just comes down to like the experience and how it looks. I think one of the challenges that I have personally when I look at like an Uber is it is way too crowded, right? It's way too much stuff going on when I open up the Uber app. Same with DoorDash. DoorDash is kind of becoming that as well. They're not quite a super app necessarily, but they're starting to branch beyond just traditional food logistics uh, into other stuff, other services. And so they're starting to add other stuff. And eventually you can imagine them adding more and more and more and more. And be trying to become like that super app because they have all these people's credit cards and all this information. So I don't know. Sometimes the, the user experience is just a little overwhelming. And so I think for it to work in the US, it has to be a certain product experience. And so I don't necessarily know if you can translate the Asian product experience into the US. And it's kind of seemed like that's the, the, the plan or the moat that everybody else is following. I don't know if that will work, right? Maybe a super app is 
more so like a GPT experience where it's just one thing that can do all things to, you know, a different user interface. I don't know, right? Maybe it's through voice. I don't, I don't know what it is for the US. Maybe it's still through it. I don't know. But I do think like the user experience has to be a little bit different in order to fit the US consumer. Um, and I think if that's done right, then I think, yeah, I think it has potential. But until that happens, I, I don't think much success will, will really happen from it. No, that, that's a really good point. Uh, I guess a follow-up question to that is, um, yeah, what, it, what, it, what, what, what cultural experiences or just social experiences do you think shape and, yeah, shape and influence the psychology of the U.S. consumer to where that's just not acceptable? Because I, I, I kind of agree with you because even from, like, if we, if we put on our product hat, product hmm. managers, engineers, designers, keep it simple. Yep. You know what I mean? That, like, that is always, like, the number one principle that yeah. is preached. Yep. And so just, just kind of curious your thoughts on that. On, on what exactly? On a consumer psychology. Like, yeah, what cultural and social events actually, like, are shaping our psychology to, for us to crave these simple products versus it seems like the cultural differences in these other markets have made it okay yeah. for them to accept these products that we would say are junky. Yeah. I think it goes back to, at least for me, like my personal opinion, I think it goes back to like, okay, let's take a look at the companies that are actually building these products here in the U S that the U S consumer has become accustomed to using and has started to frame it's, uh, you know, we, we've, we've used to like frame our reference in terms of like what a good user experience is, right? Let's use the the, be the biggest and the best that we know in terms of US, which is Apple, right? Think about how Apple makes products today and like, you know, what has made their adoption so great? It is, yes, their marketing and yes, all that slick stuff as well, but it's really how they crafted the experience, right? And I think you've, you've talked about that as well, like the, the Vision Pro, like it was super simple, like the way they, they, they were very thoughtful on how they did it, but it was simple. They didn't, you didn't put the headset on and they just pounded you with a bunch of noise and bells and whistles. No, they really took the time to really guide you and really kept it really straightforward and simple. Uh, and I'm sure even in the interface, it's very simple. Uh, and so I think like the, the, I, I think the U.S. consumer is, is, just co is just programmed in order to go towards simplicity and to go towards a certain user experience uh, and, and really kind of segment certain parts of their life into different apps. Because that's the design of the experience has been given to us, right? Like think about it in terms of like the iPhone, like I would argue that is the first super app really in the U.S. to really work, right? Because the, the app is the operating system, right? It is the iOS operating system that has all these different mini apps, all these different programs that are running and that people have the ability to, to kind of individually tap into. And so I think the U.S. consumer has been just trained on that mentality, um, Whereas, again, in China, where a lot of those consumers have come into the online, into the internet age, mobile first. And so, you know, that entry point in terms of how you get online, how you connect, how you buy, how you shop, how you commerce, how you compartmentalize that part of your life is just fundamentally different than here in the U.S. And so, yeah, I think a lot of it has to just do with the, the companies that are building these products and how they've trained consumers. And again, if they want to retrain us, I think it just has to be an experience that you know, it's, it's kind of baked off the frame of reference that we built, or you have to rebuild that frame of reference, which I think is pretty hard to do. Unless you're a company like Apple, where you got people doing things with their hand, like that's a whole different level of interacting with a product, you know? Yeah. Now that's a, that's, that's a really good point. And I think, um, yeah, you made another good point around, you know, 
yeah, with China, with China, you know, coming onto the to the internet, their first entry was mobile. Or exactly. Had, yeah. Yeah, we did have mainframes, and then from there, we we got the early days of personal computing, or even video games, if you really want to get like so. No, that's that's a really good point. Are there are there any countries that you visited or are on your list to visit um, that you feel have the potential uh, to leapfrog like technologies we, we we may be familiar with today into you know these frontiers? I think China is one in particular. They're very very interesting. Like like you said, like we've talked about, like their government, the investment that the government is making is real. Like it's it's real, uh, and They've not only invested in like the technology, but they have invested in the infrastructure. And the infrastructure is so important because that is the foundation in which the technology gets built from, right? Like it's very important to have basic infrastructure, like roads and bridges. And that's something here in the U.S. that we don't really think about. But that's very important because then you can allow people to physically connect, right? Physically build stuff. Because at the end of the day, you know, we spend a lot of time talking about online products, but look, online all reverts back to physical world, right? Like you need physical products in order for the online world to exist. And so I think the Chinese government has done a really good job. So I'm super excited for their continued progression. I'm also excited for places like South Korea. Like, you know, again, these are companies, countries in the Asian market that have done a good job in terms of being more technologically forward in, in, term, in their society. Um, and so I'm excited as, to see what, how they take advantage of some of this, the, the new AI trends and, and some of those things. Um, and then another one like Japan is just like super exciting. Like, uh, yeah, that place is just like next, next level. And then, uh, you know, obviously there's some places in Europe as well that, you know, cause that's where a lot of academic research, I mean, you know, England, for example, there's a lot of academic research that comes from Oxford. We can't ignore them. Um, and some of the other universities there too. So there's a lot of countries between Europe and Asia that I'm super excited for. And then obviously the U S I mean, uh, you know, we're still, uh, you know, really, uh, really involved in some of this emerging technology, whether it's chip manufacturing, whether it's the manufacturing of the, sh the machines that make the chips or the manufacturing of the machines that make the machines that make the machines that make the chips. Like the U.S. is really involved in those areas. So, yeah, I, I would say those three areas of the world I'm, I'm really excited for. Yeah, now that's a, that's, that's a really good point. And I think a, a really good transition into the next topic that we were kind of talking about, which was these chips. Um, which has everybody up in, up in arms right now. Cause you know, Mr. Altman came out here and said he was raising not 7 billion, but $7 dollars. <laughs> yes. Uh, that's nuts. Yeah. That's, 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 that's really wild to say the least. Um, yeah. And this, this is what I found interesting too, but like, there's only a few countries that, have over seven trillion dollars in gdp mm. the u.s and china being two of them um yeah and even like i think uh they were talking about um how a lot of the saudi wealth uh was actually looking to be one of the big investors or big players in this potential seven trillion dollar deal their economy is only literally a half a trillion dollars and so mm. uh yeah, this is an interesting figure. Uh, it's a large figure. It's a figure that I don't think many people can comprehend. And so I'm just kind of curious, like, yeah, I want to unpack this figure. Like, I want to unpack it in terms of just understanding, like, yeah, 
how do you even allocate that type of capital? Two, how do you even raise that type of capital? Three, like, how did you even arrive at like that? That that was the investment that was necessary. Where do we start? Which piece do we do we do we want to pick apart first, man? Let's start with the amount of capital because I think that's the that's the most alarming piece. Because I think if it was like, you know, five billion dollars, I don't think it would have been as big of a headline shocker you know maybe it would i think it would have still got some headlines some press because you know it's billions of dollars so it's not every day that people are trying to set out to raise billions of dollars but i think the fact that you were talking a trillion trillion dollars that is ex extraordinary and really the, the the main headline here and so let's start with like how do you even arrive to like that particular justification and um the only thing i can really chop it up to is having such a bold vision that nobody quite understands how we get there and whether or not if we will get there. But the vision is just so bold and so ambitious and probably somewhat clear enough to where people see somewhat of a possibility that you can just throw out some number like that, right? And so I think if you talk about, like, let's put that in more context, right? If we're talking about, hey, I want to build or I want to solve the problem of, you know, AGI, Right. If I want, if that's the problem set that we're choosing to solve, right. And then you start telling the narrative of the story. Okay. What does that unlock if we get there? What does the world look like if we unlock, if we get there? What does healthcare look like if we get there? What does drug manufacturing look like if we get there? What does logistics supply chain look like if we get there? What does climate change look like if we get there? And Sam has talked about a lot of these different things. What does energy look like if we get there? You know, he's given his opinion and his thoughts across a lot of these domains. And so I think when you, you know, take a technology like that and you start applying it to these really big, massive industries that are trillion dollar industries of their own, right? Healthcare, logistics, and climate change, like all the all energy, these are all multi trillion dollar industries. And you start to think about the potential impact that this technology has when it's applied to those, then it maybe, look, maybe looks like, you know, getting there with a trillion dollars seems like a drop in a bucket compared to the enterprise payoff, right? And so then, then it doesn't look so crazy anymore um, when you compare it to the potential impact. And that's potentially how he's like kind of positioning it, it seems, because again, I've heard him talk about all these different areas um, and, and, and how AI and, and, and further advancements in chips uh, will have an impact. So it certainly seems to be like some of the things that he's leaning into. And so- yeah, that that's that's my thing, my my take on that on the terms of like the price or the amount. Yeah, I want to uh, let let me provide some numbers around this because I think it will it will help Perutus in this. So the average this and this this is based off of uh, Samsung, Intel, and data from Taiwan Semiconductors, large players in 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 in, in the chip space right now. On average, they spend ten billion dollars to build a factory um and i found this i found this stat actually interesting of those players and some you know those those are the kind of like the big the, the big wells of the industry and including some of the small players only a trillion a little over a trillion dollars has been spent in the entirety of the semiconductor the history of semiconductors today to build um to build those factories and so what he what he's proposing is seven times yeah. times that um 
which which is which 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 is wild to say the least. Um, I think the other thing that I found interesting too was, um, yeah, this was actually this was actually interesting. Was that right now? Just ba- like, say for example, nothing changed. He didn't, you know, raise this money or whatever. Um, right now, global chip sales is expected to hit a to hit one trillion dollars in sales. And so it's growing, it's growing rapidly. Um, and I think the other thing that I would point out too is like investments in AI specific chips mm-hmm. has been rising specifically yep. because um, training, everybody likes to talk about the training costs, which um, at first that's where my head initially went. But I was like, um, after, after looking up the number, it costs a hundred million, which still isn't a small number. To train GPT four, but in the context of seven trillion dollars, that's very, very minuscule. Um, but the thing when it comes when it comes to these models, and I think there's been plenty of talk around OpenAI around this, is the cost of inference is sometimes three to five times higher than the cost of training these models. So serving these models puts a lot of pressure on the business models of companies like OpenAI, Claude. I think there was some recent data uh, that got le- an investor leaked around Claude uh, and Anthropic that showed um, that, their, that, their, um, that their margins um, were actually like significantly lower than people were expecting because people were, <laughs> because of these subscription business models, people were assuming that's the same kind of, you know, margins that you were going to get for an OpenAI or an Anthropic. And that's, that's just not the case. And hmm. so in the context of this, like, I think it's, yeah, I, I, I like, I, I haven't listened to the video where, 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 where this is mentioned, but I'm curious, like how, like, what does, what does a seven times, like an industry that is already so big, it's in every device, lamps, computers, cars, phones, you name it. What does yeah. seven times that look like in reality? Like, yeah. and how, what does he perceive it as? Do you have any context around that? I mean, not not exactly, but I mean, I can only speculate on my own opinion. And I mean, and some some things that I've read, I think the other thing that he's thinking about is one, not just like the value unlock that exists if we get to that promised land that I mentioned, but the um, the the other thing that I th- I think that he's thinking about too is is what does future demand look like? Because we already know, like a couple, like recently. And even now, like there is still like a chip shortage, right? I think there's been some some relief on that side, but for a minute there was like a global chip chip shortage. And so, in a world where we're moving towards where you know everything is going to be ran by more and more advanced chips, and so the demand across cars, across all those industries that I mentioned, starts to explode. Like you just got to kind of meet the capacity, and so I think. Sam is really thinking about like what is future demand for really, really advanced AI chips going to look like. And I think he's right about that. I think it's probably going to even be more than the seven times that he is, 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 is estimating. Now, the, the, the question is like, you know, on, on what time horizon, but I think the demand for chips is, especially for those like advanced AI ch- chips is going to be astronomical. And I mean, you're already starting to see it, right? There Intel, like you mentioned, Intel is building fa- uh, factories. But I mean, 10 billion is only the bottom, right? Like I've seen factories that they're building that cost 20 to $30 billion, right? Like these are real capital investments. 
that are being made. Because again, I believe like these chip companies and governments believe future demand for these chips is going to just be extraordinary. Um, and so, yeah, in that world, like you just got to build that future capacity. And so, yeah, I think that's how Sam's thinking about it. I don't think he's thinking about it in terms of small incremental steps, meaning like, sure, you can build towards that same vision with $100 billion, right? You, you could, right? Or you could really just like, let's just really solve the problem. Like, let's just, let's just go with what we need. And let's just really solve the problem for real. Now, whether that's true or not is, is to be seen. And he's probably wrong, right? But I think at least like when I hear him talk and I, when I'm looking at these numbers and I'm looking at, you know, what he's thinking about, um, that's kind of what I take from it. He's thinking about the future. Also thinking about like the, the amount of value that these, uh, these chips are going to generate. But I think it's more about that future demand. Got you. What, yeah, what, what, what is your perspective? Um, yeah, what, 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 what is your perspective on the impact? Yeah, if they were to get in this business, um, yeah, for, for OpenAI. I don't know if OpenAI would be in that business. I mean, it seemed like he's doing it separately. I don't know. What do you, what do you think? I mean, based on the moves he's making, it seemed like he's doing this separately from OpenAI, right? Oh. No, I did, like I, I think that's something like where that's still kind of fuzzy to me. But I would mm. say I would say like I'm sixty percent confident that like I think he is doing this with OpenAI. Just like going back to the earlier conversations, um, when when the whole board thing was 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 going down, I think people had mentioned that, or I heard one story that had mentioned that it was due um, to the fact that he had brought up these ambitions. Of wanting not only to build physical products, but to get in get into chips, and I think it's just a reoccurring theme right now. Going back to what I was saying around like the business of LLMs, um, and mm. especially in a space where yeah, open source open source is becoming a thing, um, and I think even with like Google getting getting into this picture now with Gemini. Um, yeah, the, the 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 competition starts to look a little bit interesting. It's it's almost similar to um actually I saw this the other day. Google so Google Google One um yeah, Google One ended up getting surpassing a hundred uh a hundred uh million subscribers last week after they announced uh Gemini. That's that's their like uh, uh what's Google One again? That's like their so, subscription Yeah, yeah. Product. So it was primarily storage photos and things of that nature, but they ended okay. up wrapping in Gemini into that. And so if you already had existing, like mm. if you already had existing one, you ended up just getting the Gemini with it. Uh, but people ended up, you know, purchasing that. And I, I think I'd read somewhere that Sundar has said like that had pushed their subscription business to like 15 billion. Um, That's crazy. So, yeah. So not to get, not, not to get off topic, but like that creates, very interesting price like just competition um and i think you know peter till has always said it like when there's a lot of competition the profits get you know ate away and so i feel like i feel like given 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 they're such a big player and one their reliance on a lot of these nvidia uh chips they they understand that like i don't I, yeah they're not making a lot of money but they're spending a lot of money it's almost equivalent to uh you know, the the whole joke of like a lot of these startups raise money and then they give a lot of it back to like AWS and things of that nature. This yep. is what that this is what that seems like. And it seems like uh at least for me, this move is more so a play 
to vertically inter in integrate and control every layer of the value chain, all the way from the early materials in 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 chips. It'll be interesting to see um, the strategy um, when it when it comes to the fabrication process. Are they more so like looking to position themselves on the design side, which a lot of U.S. companies have done, or are they also looking to get in on manufacturing, which is a lot more complex? Um, but right now, we know they have the model, and we know they have the we, they have the application layer. And so it almost hmm. seems like that's a that's a layer worth taking a shot at to really control the value chain. And we we we've spoken uh immensely on the podcast about Tesla, yeah. uh SpaceX, when they've controlled the value chain and what that's unlocked. And so I almost I almost yeah, I'm I'm sixty percent confident that like that's that's the play because I I genu gen, genuinely don't see a path forward for open AI long term. Um within like the next next five to 10 years. Like I don't see them being around as, 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 as a genuine business. And I don't think Microsoft can be trusted. You said five to 10 years. Yes, bro. Hmm. Yes, bro. Interesting. Interesting. You might, you might be right. They might, that might be, that might be where, that might be the, the play that they need to make to really secure their future right is really vertically integrating owning that hardware and look i think that i think that might be the case right because i think there's a, a there's like an old saying that like you know if you want to be a software company you need to be a hardware company right like you really need to like you really need to own the hardware too similar to what apple does right similar to microsoft right like similar to a lot of success like you know tesla the companies we usually already mentioned that we talked about so yeah i 100 percent can see that as well I can't for sure say that the current business will be at zero, um, but I I would say like if they did go into this into the manufacturers started manufacturing of chips, designing just started to be more vertically integrated in that aspect. I could see, um, I could see that being a much, much more valuable business, right? But, Especially but, but th think about their competitors. So if we think about if we think about Amazon. Amazon is developing their own chip, but they're also developing, you know, large language models. We're not going to say it's GPT-4, but they have that. Sure. If we yep. look at Facebook and Google, each of them are designing their own chips. Like, and yep. so it, the, the space is already kind of like going there. Um, and I think whoever gets there first, um, honestly, I don't even, it, actually, I, I don't have many thoughts around like if it's a, if it's a winner take all market, I, I don't know if it will be that, but I do think it could potentially make things interesting when it does come to like, not necessarily, um, yeah, because NVIDIA, NVIDIA, they're, they're, they're a designer, but are they a manufacturer of chips? Yeah, I was going to say, I think, that, I think Sam seems like he wants to, you know, manufacture some of his, you know, actually manufacture the chips himself. So. Yeah, I think that puts them at a different. I think that puts them at a different business. And then, I think too. I think their partnership with with Microsoft. I, I do believe that partnership is really important because I think if they transition into this chip design and manufacturing business, then I think that puts them into a whole different. Um, I, I think that creates more opportunity from the integration partnership they do have with Microsoft, right? Because look, you got to think about who are the buyers of that technology, right? Like yeah. consumers are not the buyers of that, right? Like, yeah, sure. We may buy some, but we're only going to be a small dent on the balance sheet for that business. So 
you got to be honest, the, the real buyers of that type of technology is our enterprise businesses. And with Microsoft being the biggest, largest, deepest enterprise distribution company in terms of software that exists, I mean, more so than AWS, more so than Facebook, more so than Google, you know, I do think like strategically that partnership would be important for them if they go into that space. Um, regardless, whether it's on the designing part, whether it's on the manufacturing part. But I think the mission remains the same. I think that's the difference that Sam is going for. You can work on, you know, these models. You can work on chips. You can work on all of that. But what's the, what's the objective, right? And I think Sam's objective of AGI, I think is just different than what everybody else is communicating. Maybe other people want to reach that same promised land as well. Maybe that's the same promised land that Google is trying to get to. Perhaps it's the same promised land that Meta is trying to get to. But I think because Sam has been very clear about like where OpenAI is going in terms of like building that, I think that fundamentally positions them differently than everybody else. And so for me, I don't really worry about what other products and everybody else is doing because strategically, they are just on a different path. That, that doesn't seem to be the strategic vision for what Meta is trying to do. That doesn't seem to be the strategic vision for what Google is trying to do. And I said he can't change and go into those things. But just integrating AI into search and dropping Gemini and introducing these free models, again, I think is just a fundamentally different strategic direction than like, we're trying to build AGI. I just think that's different. Maybe these other companies can copy, uh, but I think that vision, that positioning, plus, you know, uh, the, the partnerships, I think positions them to take advantage of, you know, these advanced chips, the demand of these advanced chips, because I think the market opportunity is probably going to be bigger than... Uh, anything or two in a day. Yeah. No, I, I, and, and I think um, going back to what you were saying about infrastructure, the infrastructure is going to have to change. Yeah. Like drastically. Sure. Um, and so I can definitely see where there's a potential opportunity there. Do you think we're witnessing one of the largest pivots in history? I don't think it's a pivot. I don't think it's a pivot because I think they've always been clear about what that vision is. But I think what's important is how you iterate there. Like, you know, like it, it's like um, it's it's like Amazon. Like, I think Jeff was pretty clear, like that he wanted to create this big e-commerce behemoth. Right. But it was like, OK, where are we going to start from? You know what I'm saying? We can't start by shipping every product and being the biggest retail store day one. We just can't start there. Right. You got to start with books and you got to evolve from that. But I don't consider that a pivot. I just consider that an evolution of the business vision and strategy that seemed to be pretty clear day one. And of course, as new context comes along, like AWS probably wasn't clear day one, of course. Right. Like you, you start making different strategic decisions. But um, yeah, I mean, it, it really just seems like that to me, at least uh, in terms of like open AI. Sam has always been kind of clear on like the AGI front. At least to me, I, the little conversations I've heard him say, uh, it, it, that seems to be like the very clear mission. And so, I mean, similar to how Google's mission was organize the worst, the, the world's search or world's information. I think it was like, yeah, organize the world's information. Um, again, if you have a very clear vision like that and the resources, like it's, I think it's possible to get there. In spite of like what the competition is doing. Again, it wasn't like Google was the only one working on search. No, they just a very clear vision and resources and they just outworked everybody else. That's a very good point. I think something that I'm curious about is what is what is the limit on the on the amount of capital that can be raised by 
by a, by a, by a, by a private entity right now. And I think, yeah, part 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 of part of me is 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 just skeptical on how how far that limit can really take you, especially like if if it is OpenAI raising. And, and and that was the other thing that wasn't clear is like is this mm. all at once? Is this amortized over you know amount of years? Like what does that what does that look like? But at what point does the financing start to matter? Because um, I do think that has implications. One just like on 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 the private market side of things, like there ain't gonna be no company that can buy them. That like that's that is genuinely becoming like the case and so the only exit opportunity is to go public and it's i'm i'm genuinely curious why don't you think how- nobody can buy them buy them like you we're hitting a point where you got companies like apple alphabet right these are companies that are hitting what trillion dollar market caps dollar. we've never seen that we've never seen that before right and so what the market is open microsoft too i think they're what i think microsoft is like a three trillion dollar market cap if i believe yeah yeah what 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 was OpenAI's last valuation? Did they do that tender often? Because wasn't it like eighty or ninety billion or something? I think it was like eighty or ninety billion. I I don't know for sure. I believe they did, but I, that was the last number that I heard. I believe it was eighty ninety billion. I don't know if it was ever. I don't know if that was ever confirmed, but that was the number that was floating around on on all the the media outlets. Oh, got you. So if that is the case, at that's a price too high, in the current state of the business. That is a price too high, and and the reason and the reason why is I think one with the recent um, rollout of, too high for who? What do you mean by too high? Explain for too anybody. High. For anybody, if you're Microsoft. What you mean? So th- what I mean, what I mean is I think with the recent advancement of Jim uh, Gemini Ultra, um, what Google just rolled out, um, I think I hopped into the chat and was just sharing my experience, but even from hearing about other people's experiences. Many people feel like it's demonstrated very similar capabilities to GPT-4, which they did come out and say, like, objectively on benchmarks, it's better on some things better than GPT-4, some things is weaker. And I think what that what that showed was, and I saw this really good argument, which I was like, damn, that's a really good point. But what this shows is that it's not necessarily a product of, like, individualized team genius. A lot of a lot of these capabilities are just the simple fact of like they're emerging capabilities that are the result of either, you know, making bigger models, adding more compute or having better quality uh, data and, and more and more of that data. Um, and so I think I think that shows that, like, yeah, this isn't something that is proprietary. It isn't something that is extremely defensible and extremely unique because it's on one of those accesses. You're but you, eating. but but I'm gonna use the same point that you use with Google. Look at the revenue, right? Like set that to the side because I don't I don't disagree in the validity of what you're saying, right? I think what you're saying is is fair, it's right. You can make a case for it. You could probably make a case against it, but let's just make the best case for it because I'll just rock with it. You're right, but look at the revenue. The business is continuing to go up. If all those things are true, still true, right? If you're just simply looking at the outcome of the business, forget open AI and forget all that. Like if you were looking at this PL, the this balance sheet or whatever, the PL from this company, the financials for this company, and it didn't have a name on it. I don't think you would look at this and be like, okay, this is this is the this is declining. That's the same prism that you're looking at Google. You're looking at Google and you're saying, okay, 
everybody's saying that Google is going to go out of business. Everybody's saying that Google is going to get disrupted. Everybody's saying that about Google. But when is it happening? Because ad revenue is continuing to go on up, which is not necessarily true. They have some softness there. But let's just rock with the fact that it's still doing well. They're, print, they're still printing money. It's still one of the best business models. So there's no disputing that, right? So it, the same thing, it's the, it's the same argument where you're saying that like open AI isn't worth all of this because of that. But yet when you look at the revenue that they're getting, when you look at the revenue and the growth of that revenue, then yeah, like the valuation is a little bit more, makes a little bit more sense, right? It makes a little bit more sense because some of these other competitors, like let's look at perplexity, for example. Bro, their revenue is nothing. It's nothing. They're doing like $20 million a year. That's nothing. Compared to OpenAI, they're doing almost $2 billion. The last number I heard, probably more than that by now, because I'm sure it's lagging by the time it gets reported. $2 billion versus $20 million. It's not even comparable. So I, I, just, I, I think it's a little bit different. So I think their valuation, sure, maybe you can say it's a little bit too high. But it's not like crazy expensive considering that they have the revenue to back into it. Now, if they were pre-revenue or didn't have nothing, then I think we'd be having a different conversation. But you can't say a company just doing almost a $2 billion runway, revenue runway is not like, isn't worth anything, right? Especially when you consider other startup valuations. Like, I mean, come on, how can a, how can a company, a brand new startup get a $20 million valuation with no revenue? And yet a company doing two point two, almost $2 billion, you don't think can justify a, uh, you know, a $60 billion uh, valuation. I mean, that, that, that don't seem too off compared to other valuations. Yeah. 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 I, in, in, in the context of like the valuation we've seen, it, 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 it makes sense. I think where I am skeptical is the stickiness of the revenue, especially in a market where the dynamics start to change. I think a lot of this revenue is predicated on them, um, one just kind of hitting this tipping point uh, in terms of AI, just kind of capturing a lot of our imaginations. I think too, um, it has been driven by fear um, and intense emotions, especially at like the B two B level, like the fear of missing out. Like, where 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 are the potential gains? And I think it's also being driven by this big vision that is being perpetuated and sold uh, around this promise of AI. But I personally. Mm. Um, I personally, I like I. I this is just my sense personally. It, yeah, this yeah. Is someone who, like I, like I'm, I'm going deep into this shit. I have, I have dumbed down a lot of like the expectations that I had in AI and a lot of the timelines that I had in AI. Could I be wrong a hundred percent? Because everybody was wrong around when this, what we're experiencing now with GPT four and Chat GPT in general was going to come, but. I sure. I definitely I definitely feel like we're on the other end of the cycle and and things are about to get slower and so I'm very curious where I am skeptical and I would say like for if I was in a position of being able to buy this company um you know if I was Microsoft anybody I I need to see that stick around because you can get 2 billion today and that shit can be gone tomorrow and I think um that's yeah, but that, but it's continuing to rise. So quarter after quarter, like you're starting to continue to see that you're, you're continuing to see that growth. So I'm gonna challenge it's you. It's a private company, so I'm, we can't I'm, really dive in there like that. Man. So exactly, but I'm gonna challenge you, just like you challenge everybody yeah. else. You always want to know, like, okay, well, define timeline. Okay, well, define how long you need to see it working, because there are not that many companies that you can name that can tell me 
that have been able to, since they've released a paid product, have been able to get to that revenue runway as fast as they have. There are just not many. So I'm with you on the fact that you need the mm-hmm. stickiness, but I mean, you got to look at the data you got, right? Like you, you can't ignore, I should say, you can't ignore the data you have trying to search for data that isn't there, right? Like, okay, we don't have all that futuristic. Okay, cool. But what we yeah. do have is revenue today, right? We have a very clear growth rate from zero to almost 2 billion. You got to give that something. Again, when you compare that to com- perplexity or other, other companies, uh, Anthropic, how much is Anthropic doing? Probably not even 100 million in revenue. So again, when you compare the context, it's a whole different level. So it's like, yeah, I get like they may like you may have skeptical, maybe skeptical of the business, but you can't ignore the discrepancy in their revenue runway and the speed in which they've been able to get there. And then you compare it to these other people and say, well, th- these are going to beat them because the results are not necessarily saying that thing. The results are saying that people are still demanding open AI. The results are saying people are still subscribing to chat GPT. The results are saying that in spite of Gemini almost hitting the benchmark of, of G, like none of that matters because people are still paying for GPT. Like people still paying for it, you, you know? So I get the skepticism, but I think we got to be honest about the data we do have and we can't ignore that. I so, agree with that. My timeline is, my, 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 my timeline is, what are we, 2024? Six yep. years. Six years, 2030. They won't be around. <laughs> they won't be around. We'll see. We'll see. The contract they have with Microsoft is longer than six years. So that alone cancels out that, the doubt you have. Microsoft alone will not let this company die. They can't. They got ten billions of dollars involved into it. They will not let it die. And it's already embedded into Microsoft products that they're selling through Azure right now. So the integration, like the, the contracts, I just say this last thing, and I'll, I want to I hear more about your opinion. The contracts that the, they're signing with these enterprise companies, I think, exceed that timeline. So you might want to push that a little bit, a bit further than six years. I think six years might be aggressive. Six to 10, 10, 10, 10 most. They, 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 they won't be around the next decade. And I think the reason why I'm saying, like, I just, I, I would not trust Microsoft is a lot of the work that they're doing um, in terms of their own LLMs. Like a lot of the research that they're doing. Like, I, it does not make sense to me in a world where Microsoft one is once again GPT four in every single product that they have to offer, then what is your incentive to be building and still putting out research on your own stuff? Yeah. And I think they've they've demonstrated that with their FI models. And I think like yes, some people will be like, oh well, those are those are smaller models. Yes. But GPT four before it was big started off as small too. And but I do think you think I, do you think Microsoft builds everything internally? Like everything that is in, internal for Azure, do you think it's everything built from scratch, from Microsoft, owned every every end, every piece from the code, the hardware, the bare metal, everything is built by Microsoft? Or do you think they have deep integration partners that have existed for shit for as long as possible? You know, they just continue to have those partnerships. What yeah, do you I'm, sure, I'm, 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 I'm sure they have a complex network of like suppliers and partnerships, but I see a world where and they're building these five models and these things are these things are starting to get better. And I think they're going to continue to. But how are they? But you have to look under the hood, bro. How are they building these models? What are they using? It's not just their own their own intellectual horsepower. That's what I'm saying. Like, yeah, they're building these things. 
but what's what's allowing them to build it? What are they using to build it? What's happening on the what's running on the machines? Like there, there's there's levels to it. And I'm not saying that a lot of this isn't core to Microsoft. But what I'm saying is that there is a level of integration that exists with these suppliers and these partners, like a NVIDIA, for example, because NVIDIA has a lot of stuff that runs on the hardware, runs on the machines that Microsoft also depends on and need, in spite of the fact that Microsoft has resources and has built a lot of this stuff. And so when I say like, uh, when, when I ask that question, it's because I think what, you're, what, what, I think you, what I think you're missing in terms of like what I'm hearing from you is, yeah, Microsoft is building these models and they're doing all this stuff. But it almost seems as if Microsoft is going to do that without any partners. And I don't get the sense. I don't get the sense that they'll ever, ever. I'm talking about the code of the models. You don't need any other integration partner, like, to write the code. Right. But, but bro, that's they what have, I'm talking about. So right now, so why did Microsoft sign a proposal? So part of the deal that they have with OpenAI, right, is that they are using proprietary models and proprietary other stuff, we don't even know. This is proprietary stuff that OpenAI is building for Microsoft. What is all that stuff for? Why would, they have a, why would they have a contract that gives them access to something proprietary that nobody has access to if it wasn't important, if it wasn't valuable? And so that's all I'm saying. Whether it's at the cold level, whether it's at the literally the bare metal hardware, it doesn't matter. My point is that Microsoft, in order for Microsoft to continue to be successful, they need and will depend on deep integration and partnerships. And so I believe OpenAI will be an important integration and partnership for them. How that evolves, we've kind of already talked a little bit about like OpenAI potentially getting into chip, manufacturing, designing. Microsoft will still need that, right? Because right now, I'm sure they depend on NVIDIA. They probably depend on Intel. They depend on AMD. They depend on a lot of different partners in that area. That's opportunity for OpenAI to come in and, and take some of that market share as well. So I don't... I guess what I'm saying is I don't necessarily think because Microsoft is doing it, that means that the opportunity for a partner integration is non-existent. I think two things can be happening at the same time. I think Microsoft can continue to build out their own models. I think they can continue to do the things that they're doing. And there's still a world where OpenAI can still be integrated with Azure and integrated with other Microsoft products and continue to thrive side by side with Microsoft products as well. Because Historically, Microsoft has been a developer-first friendly environment. So for them to even make this investment and then uh, essentially, uh, you know, so, you know, self, essentially, you know, self-deprecate their own investment by building something else, that would make no sense. Like, why would, you, why would they even do that? Why would they go through all the work to integrate this company, invest $10 billion just in the next five years to wipe it off by building their own models? That would be strategic suicide. That wouldn't even make sense. I don't think... Even if you were a Microsoft why shareholder, would that, you would, would look at it. Why would you do it? For what? Think about that from Microsoft's standpoint. I think you do this. Part of the reason why you do this is, one, it's this perceived information edge. They know something that you don't. And then, two, I think it's the fact that, like... Wait, who knows something that we don't? What, what, what do you mean? Well, not, not we, but, like, what do you mean by, like, open AI, open AI or what do you mean? Open AI knows something that Microsoft doesn't. So there's this information advantage. And then I think the second, I think the uh, potential second thing as well is, um, yeah, just this, just this rise in synthetic data. I think open AI, just given that their model is like the best one right now, is being used a lot, especially, um, yeah, that was like one of the big things when it came to the Phi model was a lot of that data set that they, that they, that they trained on was a lot of synthetic data. 
from OpenAI. So that's not to say OpenAI will not still play a role. Like, sure, if they get to this beautiful future of getting into chips, sure, they'll maybe be able to, you know, integrate into, into Microsoft. But I'm speaking plainly from an, a model standpoint, a model, them monetizing the LLM. They're in trouble. Yeah, nah, I did, totally disagree on that. Totally They're disagree on that. That we'll business see. is going to evaporate, bro. We'll see. We'll see. Right now, it's up. It's, it's up and to the right. Uh, while Microsoft is doing all these things, so that that doesn't that that hasn't panned out yet. So we'll see. You said five years. You said six to six to six ten, ten years. Six to ten. Six to ten. Six to ten. We we'll see. Look, no, both of those points that you mentioned to me seem like a weak investment thesis for why Microsoft would do it. Again, they're the largest software enterprise company in terms of data. I don't think there's any company that has more data than Microsoft. And so there is no reason to even partner with a company like OpenAI for data. Like there, there is no data that OpenAI can possibly have. And in fact, in order for Microsoft, I'm sorry, in, open, in order for OpenAI to even get access to their data, they rely on data that Microsoft has, right? Like they rely on Microsoft search index. Like they rely on data that Microsoft has been gathering for decades. So I don't think there's any information edge at all. That, that, at least in my opinion, that, that justifies like the investment thesis of 10 plus billion and plus all the other resources for, for, for Microsoft to make. I, I don't think it's about information. I, I, think, it's, yeah, it's, I think it's much it's, more than that. It's, 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 def, it's definitely probably a, a, a information because I think if I'm Microsoft, I want to see what you have under the hood if, it, if, it, if it's really like that, really like that. And then the other thing too is it's not necessarily sure Microsoft can have access to all this enterprise data but they would be getting their ass sued if they were training a lot of models on that. So they choose not to. I think it's more so leveraging GPT-4 in the current form. You don't think they're doing that? Come on, bro. Come on. Companies do that all I, the time. When you sign, when you sign, I can tell you, go read a terms and conditions of any software company. Go read the terms and conditions of your iPhone. Any software company, bro, you are giving up your data. Any data that is generated from a software but company. we're talking about prizes here. So yeah, that that's, but that's what I'm talking about. That company, that data sits within their application, bro. It is, it is application generated data. Yes, they have access to that. And yes, they use that shit. Of course they do. Now they may anonymize it and they may have different ways of cleaning that information. So that obviously to, to, to for privacy, for privacy reasons, but of course they're using that information to improve their products and they're use, they have access to that data, bro. It's not like it's going into a black box. Like, there's access and then there's training on it. I don't it's think the, they're going to... Bro, it's the same thing. If you, if you, when you sign these terms and conditions, you literally give up your rights for that data to be used to improve the product. That's literally what the terms and conditions say. Like, that's what you give your rights up to for them literally not to resell it. A lot of companies will put that in terms and conditions. We're not going to resell your information. But what we will do is we will use this to enhance the product and service. Almost every TNC conditions has some some language very similar to that what do you think that means like so, yeah of course it means training it means it means across the entire the across the entire enterprise like they're using it for everything now who has access in the enterprise whole different thing and that varies by company right like when i was at disney there was certain information yeah i did not have access to because i wasn't working on that particular project but it wasn't like the, that information wasn't collected analyzed and used in order to improve the entire business Every ounce of data we had was used for that. And I can that, guarantee that, you Microsoft that, is doing that as well. That makes sense. But I think in terms of training at LM, like if they are doing that, they're going to get a lot more of those New York Times lawsuits. 
bro, there's a lot that happens within these companies that don't get out. So, I mean, I, I, I mean look, that, that would be my bet. I would not give them the benefit of the doubt that they're not using it. I don't care what they say. The terms and conditions give them the right to do it. And so, therefore, they wouldn't do it in a T's and C's from a legal ex standpoint if they weren't planning to execute it. Companies don't do that. They put it in there to cover themselves legally because they're doing it. And they don't want you to know about it because, again, not everybody has access to it. Not everybody knows that. But it's there. Like, it is there. And I think, Apple, you know, that's one of the big problems with Apple, especially, like, not to go off into a tangent, but when Apple changed, like, their tracking, their, their uh, ad tracking uh, technology, like, a lot of companies were frustrated with that. But you go and look, look at the terms and conditions of, of Apple, this says the same thing. They use all of your behavior costs, all your apps, all that data to improve the Apple experience. And so they're, they're looking at that data, but they're cutting it off from everybody else to look at it. And so, yeah, I, yeah. again, we don't know for sure, but I, my guess would be company, they're using that data regardless of what they say. So, so know, I don't know. So do you think Microsoft and OpenAI are going to win this New York Times lawsuit? I don't know if they'll win the lawsuit, but I'm not sure if the lawsuit will change anything. Right? Like, I don't think it will change anything. Like, I, I still think business will remain the same, meaning like my open AI will continue to grab data the way they've been doing it. They'll continue to try to get these publisher partnerships as they've been continuing to try to do. And so whether they lose or not, I don't think it really matters. Like they'll pay the New York Times, but I think the reality is the New York Times will get on board. And so I think that's what's mo was more important. How it shapes out, I have no idea who wins or who loses, but my bet would be the New York Times would get on board just like all of these other publications like what Axel Springer. Getting on board? Because that content will, because I think they can monetize that content, right? Like you got to think about it. Like these media publications have this backlog of content that they're just sitting on and they, they, they themselves have been, able, have been trying to build a subscription business. And unlike New York Times, I mean, they've been semi-successful at it. You know, they have a few million subscribers, but a lot of these other media publications have not been doing that well. I mean, go look at BuzzFeed, right? Go look at like, Bleacher Report. Go look at some of these media companies that have had to lay off a bunch of people because they're not making that much money, right? Business model is not necessarily pumping out to be and turning out to be what they thought. And so the opportunity to license this content and be paid for this content, license content is, is similar to what happens in Fairman TV, right? If you're HBO and you can license content to Netflix and get paid for that, that's a good business, right? If you can license your content to OpenAI and they're willing to pay you, which they are willing to pay and you can earn whatever amount from that, that's a good business. Right. And it's the same reason why like Reddit and a lot of sites have turned off the ability to access that because they want those they want those agreements in place first because they want to be paid for it. So that's the incentive, I think. Yeah, I think I, that 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 makes sense. But I think this lawsuit came out of the fact that like they didn't think to pay them in the first place. And I think them going to publishers now is more so an afterthought rather than something that they were proactive about from the beginning. And I, I think that is going to have consequences on their business model. Like, is their business model built to, you know, withstand those large investments yearly that they're going to have to make in these license agreements? I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. We'll see. We'll see. We'll see. We'll see. I, I think it will. I, I think it can certainly, I, I think it could totally c c sustain it. I mean, again, you look, you, a parallel would be a Netflix, right? Look how much money they yeah. spend on content and have to pay out. So clearly the business model works at that level, right? Where you're paying out a lot for those assets. I'd imagine like, you know, the New York Times, yeah, they may make a lot off of open AI, but I mean, it probably won't be like crazy. Like, you know what I'm saying? But it's still like, 
I mean, if you're making tens of millions of dollars in free cash flow from just licensing content, look, from a, just from a pure P&L standpoint, I mean, that's good, that's good revenue. That's good business, right? That's revenue that we wouldn't have captured otherwise. And then we still can sell our subscription, you know, still continue business as as it doesn't require anything for us. All you need is a access to the API and you're going to pay us for that. I don't think that's a bad business. And I don't think it matters that they didn't do it first or whatever. I, I think, again, I think the reality is OpenAI is proven that they have distribution. I think it's reflective in their revenue. I think it's reflective in their user numbers. I think it's reflective in their partnerships. The sustainability, I agree with you, is in question, but I think they've built that. And so I think media companies like New York Times will eventually have to get on board. Uh, and again, maybe OpenAI may have to pay up because they didn't ask first. But I don't think that changes. I mean, you know, just like Uber was launching in cities. I mean, that didn't stop Uber from, you know, going into these cities. I mean, it certainly slowed them down. But I mean, shit, Uber is still in New York, right? It's still in LA. It's still, it's still here, right? Like, so I think, I think about it in that same vein, um, at least in my mind. That makes sense. That makes sense. Yeah. yeah. I just think uh, depending on how this case goes, um, it potentially can set an interesting precedent. That's true. That's true. Expect man, if it gets man, I wonder. I wonder how far to go, right? Like, uh, yeah. If this becomes like a Supreme Court, I don't know if it'll go to that far. But like, if it becomes like law of the land from this case, then yeah, that certainly could shake things up in terms of how these deals make. But look, I think if any, like I said, if any publisher can license that back catalog, I mean, again, like the New York Times has been around for a hundred years, right? Like, you know, you as a reader probably is not reading stuff that they did in the early nineteen hundreds. But if they can monetize that, I mean, that seems like a good business and. I don't think they should do exclusives necessarily. I don't know if these media companies are doing that. I don't, we didn't talk about that, but you know, I imagine Google, Google already has some of these media partnerships in place. So maybe they're starting from a different position because they already have these agreements, but you know, perplexity at some point might have to strike some of these similar deals or, you know, some of these, you know, anthropic, I don't know exactly how they're approaching it, but they may have to strike some of these similar deals as well. Hmm. No, that's a really good point. Yeah. It's, 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 it's going to get interesting. You know, I like, bull bets man that's that's my opinion, of course man. of course i love it i respect it bro i respect it man i respect it yeah i respect it man what else what else you got anything else you want to wrap it up nah i think uh yeah i'll just i'll just say this shortly but uh bitcoin passed 50k um and this was for the mm. first time since 2021 that's big um, yeah and you have uh i think what you're starting to see is a few things start to be priced in to drive this one, the anticipation of the Bitcoin having, I think happening in April, um, which is always a significant bit event and you always see a significant, um, bump. But then I also think just like the introduction last month of the, uh, spot ETF as well. Like, I think you're going over, over time, like, I would actually, if like, if I was to put a time over, I think over, over the next year or two, um, yeah, as we start to see how the economy really plays out in terms of like this soft landing, um, and we see a lot more money start to flow back to riskier asset classes, especially mm -hmm. at the institutional level. I think that's where shit can get very interesting because this whole beat. This this whole Bitcoin ETF is all about, hey, you can have Bitcoin in your pocket and you ain't got to have no wallet. You don't have to go through the complicated Web3 stuff. And I think this unlocks a very interesting value prop for uh, for institutions. Um, 
And we, and you know, it's, it's well known that like at an institutional level, a lot of these hedge funds, et cetera, drive the markets of equities. I think you potentially could see something interesting here too. Um, and I think the, I think even for like Ethereum, there's, there's an ETF that's being worked on as well. Um, and so, mm. yeah, this, I, I don't know how you, how you, how you want to frame it, but this abstraction of the complexity behind familiar things is starting to emerge in that world. And that's, that's, that's very interesting. What was Bitcoin's price at? Do you know where it was at? Like uh pre pandemic? Like, is it, cause I, I don't really track Bitcoin as or crypto as much. I mean, occasionally if I see the headline, if it hits like all time high, it might catch my attention, but it's not something I'm actively looking at. I'm curious to know, like, how does this current price uh, compare to like pre pandemic or like maybe right after the pandemic, I guess, where is it relative to where it's been over the last couple of years? Yeah. yeah, yeah. So um, looking at the information right here. So in 2019, January of 2019, Bitcoin was, at thirty eight hundred dollars. Um, thirty eight hundred dollars. Wow. Okay. Yeah, yeah. It ended the Damn. year. At, it ended the year of twenty nineteen at seventy two hundred dollars. Mm. And then going into the pandemic in twenty twenty, it reached an all time high um, at the end of the year of twenty nine thousand three hundred seventy four dollars. That's crazy. And so we've almost seen a doubling since then. And this is in a period of time where capital hasn't been as free flowing as it was during the pandemic mm -hmm. and still in this quote unquote crypto bear market. <laughs> and so I think, I think, I think it's, yeah, I'm, I'm bullish on it long-term just for the simple fact of like, one, I've always just seen this thing grow, go up. I just have never been patient enough to just hold on to it. <laughs> two, two, the second thing as well is like, I think I, um, I was listening to like an, a podcast from Adreesan on it. And mm. one of the partners, the way he broke it down was like, yeah, just thinking about money. Money is just a collection of beliefs. Like it took a handful of people to believe that this thing had value for it to really have value and then from there start to, you know, propagate across the world. And I think that's what that's you're, true. what you're seeing here too is the belief in it. That like it's when it comes to Bitcoin, I'm more more attached to like the intangibles. Like specifically what I pay attention to are devs. Do developers do developers believe in this because it's a digital currency and then currency and it always starts with them first. Yep. No, I 100% agree with that. Developer, the developer ecosystem will tell you quite a bit around like what the future might hold in terms of uh, uh, how that how that particular ecosystem might shape up. I, I agree because I, I was when Solana was kind of going on as up and up, yeah. the price of Solana was kind of seemed like semi correlated to the the uh, activity from the developer ecosystem. Um, yeah. Like more developers were just starting to integrate it, use it, mess around with it, and so that. Got it, got it going up and up and up. And same thing on, a, on Ethereum as well. So, no, that's a, that's a good point to look at. Maybe I need to trap more crypto, man. I kind of put it on the back burner because I thought it's like, oh, we're in this bubble. It bursts. It's, it's done. It's dead. I'm still asking myself, like, what's the, what's the importance of this technology um, outside of the transaction piece? Like, I, I, get the, I get the value in terms of like, 
allowing somebody to transact peer to peer in terms of like cutting out the middleman. But like, that seems like you can probably solve that if you just, you know, would, would, I mean, I don't know if Bitcoin is the answer for that because of the, the, the price and, the, and well, not necessarily the volatility of the price, but because of the volume. Right. But maybe there's just like a, a we just need some digital coin. It's like that's the real thing that we're solving for. Um, so I guess outside of that context, I'm always confused on like the other opportunities that exist in crypto. I, I, I think the I think the crypto. Um, yeah, the crypto opportunity that I'm just. Yeah, waiting for is at the intersection of AI. And so Vitalik, the founder of. Um, Ethereum. He recently wrote a post on 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 just four kind of main plays that he saw at the intersection of AI and crypto. I haven't got around to reading it yet, and so just throwing that out there for anybody that mm -hmm. does want to read because it, it recently came out. Um, but the thing that okay. I'm most excited for, and I've always viewed um, the blockchain as a public utility, a public mm -hmm. utility. And the reason why this is important is because if we look at electric, if we look at you know um what gas and things of that nature there are certain utilities that did not start off that way um and even if even, even 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 if they're controlled by companies or whatever um they're just in 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 some sense they're general technologies that you just can't you just you just can't go through and i think i think this is going to emerge because of the pressure well not necessarily pressure is not the right word but more so the shift that our society is going to go through um, when it comes to data, mm. when it comes to data. And I think, I think unless there are other technologies that are out there and I'm sure somebody's working on it or whatever, and I'm sure there's with, like with our existing technologies, there's probably some workarounds or whatever, but I do think there's going to be a paradigm shift where people are going to want to own their information. And I think right now you're seeing it with the big, the big players, Absolutely. New York yeah. Times, for example, or Reddit, for example, everything always starts up top and eventually makes its 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 its, its way down. And I think, um, yeah, I'm just kind of curious. I don't know what that's going to look like, but I'm curious to see what what that looks like. Will the catalyst be agents? Um, will the catalyst be AGI? Like, will the catalyst be a mixture of like socioeconomics where people are out of are, are, are out of work, but they have a, this valuable asset called data that they potentially can trade for something. Um, and so I view, I've, I've always viewed the blockchain as this public, public utility, more so this public database that we're all going to have access to, and it's going to cost something, aka gas fees, to be mm. able to act. And, and so right now, I actually read this really good post the other day where it was talking about ethereum potentially being aol meaning it's at it's at the top right now but because of the gas fees being so high it's very hard to transact on it because it's expensive right, right? right. yeah and obviously you got like the l2s and things of that nature but like how good are those because they're just another ab abstraction but i say all that to say like i really do think the opportunity is going to emerge as this need to have ownership and provenance over data becomes an increasing thing. And that's where I think the blockchain, I don't know what that means for crypto um, in terms of tokens and things of that nature. I do think that's one potential way to, you know, govern um, how data is used and things of that. It could get very interesting, but I mm -hmm. think more so I'm, I'm like the blockchain more and also ZK, 
Z, um, ZK rollups and uh, ZK syncs. That technology is very interesting um, as well. Um, and there's some, actually, I got one homie who would be very good for this podcast. His name is Lance. He used to be an investor over at, uh, on the Andreessen uh, cr- crypto team, but he specifically is building ZK syncs um, uh, at the intersection of the blockchain and AI. Um, and hmm. when you hear him just break down some of that stuff, like, and he spends a lot of time in these emerging markets where a lot of these technology, crypto and blockchain technologies are being adopted. Um, and it's just very interesting to just hear his world perspective uh, on it as well. But that's just kind of kind of the thing that I'm seeing or thinking. Yeah, no, no. You said a lot of interesting stuff. I need to maybe tap back into it. All I know is it seems like uh, A16Z might be best positioned because I'm, I'm sure there's other funds as well. But they were always seem like super bullish on crypto in general for I me, mean, not always, but for a while, for a long time. Like they've obviously made some big investments, dedicated funds. Like they, they've, they've been early in just deploying capital. Some of it I'm sure has just been like set on fire and they'll never well, get it back. Their uh, financing but, was interesting because their hmm. traditional financing, their financing, uh, at least for some of their companies, wasn't traditional in terms of we gave you capital and we took equity. What they it was the coins, right? Yes, they took the coins, and because yeah. of that, it was very similar to stocks. When that bitch was high, they got out of them. And I they got out, yeah. I, I remember because you literally because it's public, you can go look at these wallets, and you would see like, nah, they doing big dumps. Mm. And so they definitely came like, despite some of these companies going to zero. Trust me, if they if they got in on that token, they they, they definitely got in and got out and cashed out. Mm. Yeah, yeah. No, that's true. That's true. I definitely saw some headlines. And I, I think they got some public pushback. I don't know how yeah. big it got, the pushback bot, but they, they definitely got some pushback because they did do that, right? So they definitely saw some liquidity. Uh, but nevertheless, they're still invested in that space. Obviously, because they've been able to make those returns back, I would hope they've uh, taken, you know, repay back some of the fund and then taken some of that and actually making some wild bets that, you know, hopefully pays off. So we'll see. But they seem well positioned either way it goes. I mean, the fact that you can make these skeptical bets and still be able to cash out so early is a uh, is a win on their uh, on their partnership team structuring those deals in that way. Nah, a hundred percent. A book, and so before we wrap up, a book everybody should go check out. I ain't ready yet, but I'm definitely gonna read it just because. Yeah, all the smart people I follow is talking about it, so I gotta tap in with it. Um, but it's Read Write Own by Chris Dixon, um, and he's just talking about you know, the power of blockchains and kind of what that looks like for the future of the internet. Um, yeah, and I think this is just one of those people who from the beginning has championed this and he's doing this a decade later, still being the champion, even going to Capitol Hill and fighting legally for this technology to have a place. You're not doing that because you're crazy. You're doing that because you're winning. Like, That's you just facts. have to, like, he he has an incentive here, and I think he's probably seen his incentive grow a little bit stronger. Um, and I think this is just one of those. This is probably a piece of information that will better help us understand the frontier. Yep, I agree. Not a good recommendation. I have I was not familiar with that book, so I'll definitely add that to my list because uh, I know Chris, Chris Dixon is definitely one that's well respected in this space, not only just in crypto but as an investor in general. So I'm sure he has a lot of a, a huge wealth of knowledge to share. So no, I appreciate that. Uh, that insight, man. Of course, man. Of course, man. Let it up. Let's wrap it up, man. This was a good conversation, man. Look forward to the next one. Yes, sir.